we're live. Greg, pleasure to be speaking with you, man. Thanks for joining me. It's such a pleasure, John. Uh, you know, it, I'm new to this and uh, I'm very, very honored to be on your show. Um, so before we get rolling, uh, you've got a ton of experience in traditional markets. And also, you've, I know you've been in Bitcoin, I think, since 2016 and heavily involved in what's going on in Canada in that regard. So maybe just a brief intro into you and your background, and then we'll get things rolling. Certainly. Um, well, very quickly, uh, I guess a good thing. Um, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, a McGill engineer, and a proud Montrealer, McGill engineering, but knew I would never truly wanted to be a practicing uh, mechanical engineer. I went and got an MBA in the US and uh, came back to Canada and worked in what I term financial engineering. So I am, I have spent over 30 years in the credit markets. I was uh, one of the first two Canadian high yield bond traders. Uh, I worked on the buy side and the sell side in trading credit, uh, the buy side uh, at two hedge funds, one being uh, with Mike Weckerly. So I'm not, as a Canadian, John, you may know who Weck is. Um, he is actually the guy that's on Dragon's Den and uh, quite a quite a uh, influential person in the trading markets in Canada, but we worked together at a hedge fund in the 2008-2009 uh, great financial crisis. Uh, so I've seen uh, my share of, uh, of financial calamities. Um, you're right, I did find Bitcoin in 2016. And um, at the end of the day, it was uh, what I viewed as the most brilliant financial inf innovation I've seen in my 32 years. Uh, very simply because uh, in 1988, I came back to Canada to work at the Royal Bank of Canada, and we could get into this story if you want, but I'll say very simply, in 1988, I was working for the CFO of the Royal Bank of Canada, and the Royal Bank of Canada was insolvent because of Latin American debt exposure. Hence the Brady Plan, U.S. Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady proposed the, uh, the Brady Plan for Mexico, and it was my job to determine what option the bank was going to go. And it's pretty scary when Canada's largest financial institution is insolvent. And just to define what that meant, if they were to mark their Latin American debt loans to market, they would have used up all of their book value of equity. And Royal Bank of Canada wasn't alone. All money center banks in the US were in the same situation. Hence, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady asking the banks to trade their loans, five-year loans for 30-year obligations to Mexico, backstopped by US Treasury zero coupon bonds. It was a brilliant structure, but I looked at this and I'm like, how is it possible I come to work at one of the largest financial institutions in the world and Canada's largest and it's insolvent? Why does it have such a high credit quality rating? And the simple answer was because they have a technical backstop by the government of Canada, they are too big to fail. And how does the government of Canada backstop them? It's printing this thing called fiat. And since 1988, I'd been looking for a solution to this thing that I viewed as being a bit of a Ponzi. Being very honest, fiat is the Ponzi. Mm -hmm. Found Bitcoin in 2016 and open to any questions that you have at that point. But yes, I was a founding partner of 3IQ, which brought Canada's first exchange listed closed end Bitcoin fund and a precursor to these ETFs that are blowing the doors off of uh, 
the Canadian ETF market. Did you see today that Purpose is up to 561 million of Bitcoin it's, in it's, three days? It's crazy. You, it's, it's crazy. It's beautiful. And all I can say <laughs> is the US ETF guys are chewing their arms off. Yeah. They are absolutely chewing their arms off. Because if you do a multiple or a factor of 10, which is generally how the Canadian economy, population and markets work, the U.S. is getting ready for a rocket ship of an ETF launch. Yeah, and I, 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 that stuff is super exciting, and I want to break into the to that in a sec. But I, I do want to hang on to the what you were mentioning about RBC and your experience there, because obviously this is relevant today on a far larger scale. You know, for far more institutions than just one big bank. Um, you know, I'm no expert in how governments and banks manage their debt. But I think more broadly, we understand that there's a lot of borrowing going on. Uh, interest rates are artificially low to facilitate that. And there's a lot of debt monetization happening. And I think most people understand, well, a lot of people in the Bitcoin space understand that, well, you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, if you're the government right now. If you allow interest rates to creep up, then your debt becomes unserviceable. If you keep interest rates artificially low, the inflation genie gets out of the bottle. So what is your assessment of, and you know, we could even go as specific as focusing on Canada right now, because Canada is obviously, you know, in 2020 has borrowed an enormous amount of money, has run an enormous deficit. And most Canadians don't really consider these things. I mean, they got other things on their minds, but what is possibly the way out? And just to give my brief perspective on this is obviously if you have a money printer in the, in the basement, most governments won't explicitly default because that's too much of a damning condemnation of, of how they've mismanaged things. So it's more likely in my mind that the inflation genie gets out of the bottle and they just try to put it in different segments of the economy to try to nullify its perception, its perceived effects, which is what's been happening over the past 10 years, if not longer. Um, and then, you know, maybe there's a, the, the possibility that, you know, a central bank digital currency, uh, you know, is the white knight that they parade around as being the solution to all our problems and they get to restart things again. What is your perception of all of that? What's going on and, and what the likely outcome is going to be? So what a heck of a question, and I'm going to respectfully disagree with you on the inflation angle, okay? okay? You need to look at the credit default swap markets, okay? Credit default swap markets measure default probabilities. They are default markets on corporates, there's default markets on sovereigns. And, you know, as a G20 country, you're, you're fairly correct that we're not going to default in the short term, but no one thought that Lehman Brothers in 2006 was going to default either because it was backed by the government. So what happened in the great financial crisis was basically a transfer of leverage from the financial system to the balance sheets of governments. That transfer has caused a debt spiral that in my opinion, has, it is mathematically impossible to solve that debt spiral. I could run through the mathematics for you, but just stick with me for a second. The credit default swap markets hold all the clues. The interest rate market and the administered interest rate or manipulated interest rate market hold no clues because it's a false market you need to look at the credit default swap market for sovereign debt. 
And don't tell me that countries don't default because in 1988, Brazil defaulted and so did Mexico. And Venezuela just recently defaulted. And yes, they can all print their own currency. It is not about being able to print. It's the necessity to roll the debt at each auction. And contagion is a horrible thing. In 2006, you could buy credit default protection on Lehman Brothers for nine basis points, which means for $10 million of debt, you could insure that debt against default for $9,000 premium, like an insurance premium, annually. When Lehman defaulted, that $9,000 insurance premium, John, was worth $6 bucks. You could turn around and sell it for $6 million. Not everyone has to default in order for credit spreads to widen. Credit spreads are a measure of the probability of default, not the, not the absolute necessity to default. So what's going to happen, in my opinion, is not the interest rate markets being the genie out of the bottle. It's going to be the credit default swap markets. And the governments can't control the credit default swap markets. So if you are a huge institution sitting on billions and billions of dollars of treasuries, and all of a sudden you see there's a failed bond auction. And when I say failed, I just mean something like a bid to cover ratio on a US treasury auction of something less than the current average of two and a half percent. You go, sorry, two and a half times. You go out and you watch Rick Santelli on CNBC and he'll give these auctions a rating. Well, what happens if that auction is only one and a half times covered? People are gonna say, holy smokes. The demand for the debt isn't there. And they're going to look at their own book and they're going to say, not only am I not going to buy anymore, I'm going to sell some of the stuff I own. And then it becomes contagious, exactly like it did in 2008, 2009. Contagion does not mean anything in an inflation world. It means the no confidence in the system. I am not rolling the debt. I want cash back. But all of a sudden you think, what is that cash they're giving me? And it becomes circular. So the mathematics are very simple. Total debt to GDP globally right now, this is total corporate and government debt, is 3.6 times the amount of global GDP. 3.6 times. A simple mathem mathematical equation would mean if that debt has an average coupon of 3%, it would mean that global GDP has to grow at a 10% rate, right? The denominator has to grow at a 10% rate if the numerator is growing at 3%, but it's three times bigger. Just to keep pace. Well, do you think the global economy is going to grow at 10% sustainably over time? I don't. Maybe then you'll throw out the inflation aspect and I'll agree with you. But if the inflation genie comes out of the bottle, when they're rolling their debt, the interest rate on the, on, the, on the numerator starts growing, right? Because new debt gets done at a higher coupon. So it's circular. And all of a sudden you realize you are caught in this thing called the Fiat Ponzi. And when people realize this, they're gonna run to Bitcoin as the natural default insurance for all Fiat borrowing governments in the world. And it doesn't mean the US has to default and Canada will default before the US does. But what happens when Canada defaults? Do you think people in the US will be like, okay, but everything's good down here? No, 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 no. 
It doesn't work that way. People who have sold default protection on Canada, meaning they've sold the protection that Canada won't default, are going to run out into the market and buy default protection on the US because they have to hedge themselves. So it's like an insurance reinsuring themselves. Again, it's circular. Leverage in the financial system is the death of the financial system. And right now we are over-levered to, you know, as you pointed out, Canada. And I sent out a tweet earlier this morning, John, and I get a lot of questions back on this. Canada has a coveted AAA credit rating by S&P. That's actually higher than the United States, AA+. But in the credit default swap market, the U.S. is trading at 11 basis points for five-year protection, and Canada is trading at 36 basis points. The market is pricing Canada as a single A credit. doesn't matter what S&P and Justin Trudeau and all these monkeys say. The market is telling you this is how risky Canada is, and people don't understand that. And so what you mentioned the auctions and you mentioned the credit default swap market is is where we should be looking for the most, the highest fidelity signs of what's happening and what's going to happen. What are they saying right now? Like these auctions, what is, how well are they being, you know, bid? Like, you know, what, what's the insight here? It's the most efficient, excuse me, the most sophisticated and most insightful market that you can look at because it's done with global financial institutions that need, uh, is, does uh, swap, in, uh, ISDA uh, agreements with uh, counterparties all over Wall Street. These are huge hedge funds. If you remember how uh, um, uh, some of the money was made or hedged in, uh, in Bill Ackman's portfolio, he went out and bought portfolio insurance on a basket of credit, right? He bought a whole bunch of insurance on a basket of credit, even though he's typically viewed as an equity fund manager, he bought all this uh, default insurance on a basket of credit and made billions and billions of dollars as an equity hedge. Well, these are the types of guys that trade in this market. And why are they sophisticated and why do they do this? Well, because they understand risk and return and global uh, uh, macro tendencies. So yes, in my opinion, it is the most insightful, but I will say this again then. If Canada's rated AAA by a rating agency, but the market is pricing it as a single A, who do you think is right? And in my opinion, the market is truth. The market is right. And that means Canada is in a whole lot of trouble relative to their credit rating. Now, that being said, it only trades at 36 basis points. And Brazil, which defaulted back in 1988, trades at 182 basis points. So there's still, you know, there's lots of room for spread widening. But I wrote a paper, and I'm very confident in this. I compared the credit default swap markets and what they are implying versus all of the outstanding federal debt. And I believe it says that Bitcoin is worth between 110,000 US and 160,000 US today. As an insurance against default. Default insurance, John, you got it. The common man can buy default insurance on countries. On the system. On the system. Okay, and that's called Bitcoin. And it's a simple calculation. It's not a simple calculation, but it's a logical calculation in my in my uh, experience. Go out and buy it. Why? Because there are chances that countries default. And don't say it could never happen to a G20 country because it's going to happen to a G20 country. And the U.S. will be the last country to default. But ultimately, as Voltaire said, all fiats fail.
It's mm -hmm. only math. And in the normal course of things, aside from like a contagion event, these these spreads and you, you were mentioning, you know, U.S. at 11 basis points, Canada at 32, Brazil at 190. How much do these generally shift over what, you know, what periods of time? Sure. Like, could we see them shift relatively quickly, either in going back to being, you know, you know, less or more? Like, what's the trend that, that's that's emerging here? Great questions. Okay, so listen, if Lehman Brothers, let's use Lehman Brothers as an example, it traded at nine basis points in 2006, then everyone realized they're over levered to mortgage backed securities, they their hedge fund, uh, a couple of internal hedge funds blew up at Bear Stearns and that leaks over to Lehman Brothers. And people are like, uh oh, um, okay, that nine basis points, they thought they were picking up money for free. So let's say I'm a huge fund and I'm selling default insurance on uh, on Lehman Brothers because nine basis points, I might as well collect nine basis points for free, right? That's how everyone thinks because it's too big to fail. And then all of a sudden it widens to 15 basis points and you're like, well, I'll sell some more. And then it widens to 30 basis points and 50 basis points, okay? Which is still a very low premium. And you, you've already sold too much and you turn around and you're like, your boss is like, buddy, you're, you're exceeding all your risk limits here. What the heck are you doing? You've got to go from being a seller to a buyer. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, I'm the only seller that was in the market. The next level means I turn into a buyer from some of the guys I have sold it to. Okay. Cause again, every contract has to match and it widens just because all these guys who think that they're selling this protection for free, cause these things are too big to fail, or they can print their way out of this realizes that the market is small is smarter than they are. And very simply, it widens, much like a bond will widen in anticipation of a, uh, a default event in a bond. So let's say it was issued at a 5% coupon, which implied a spread over treasuries of 250 basis points. And all of a sudden, the credit quality of that company is, is deteriorating because cash flows are, are brutal or it's a blockbuster or whatever. Well, that spread starts widening pretty quickly because people are like, I don't want to own this paper anymore. Well, what does it mean? If you sell a bond at 100 cents on the dollar and all of us, or you own it at 100 cents on the dollar and all of a sudden you want to get out of it, you, you have to sell it for a price. And if that price is now 90 cents on the dollar on a 5% coupon, well, that turns into an 8% spread. Okay. And that's how things widen because it's only a price. Everything always trades for a price, but people look at it in terms of a spread. Well, it's just like anything. These are some of the most liquid markets in the world, but they too are subject to, you know, a, a change of heart, a, a people losing their confirmation bias and saying, hey, maybe I shouldn't be picking up these nickels in front of a steamroller. I better reverse my, and sometimes the margin clerk has no choice and says, buddy, we need to raise cash. You just got to go out and unwind this, uh, this position. And that's what happened just recently with the Robinhood trades. You know, it's not, whether you think it's a good investment or not, it's when you need cash and you're getting redeemed, man, oh man, there's some ugliness that can happen when you need to un unwind these positions and these, uh, these insurance contracts. Mm -hmm. And what, what's the relation? Cause you know, this is kind of an opaque, highly complex world that I think, or I'd love to get your opinion on this in a second, but largely due to maybe the inherent faults in the fiat system that has necessitated this level of complexity in financial engineering, let's say, but what do, what is the impact of the real economy, quote unquote, 
on these markets? And let me explain a little bit about this question. So let's take Canada, for example. Uh, a lot of small businesses have been decimated over the course of the last 12 months. Uh, the government did the CERB check things. Everyone got $2,000 a month. We've normalized the government handing out cash to people. There's a, been a lot of insolvencies and you know, there's possibly more to come in the next three to six months. And so the, the real economy has suffered greatly over the last 12 months. And the, the genesis of my question is, how much should we expect to see the pain in the real economy be reflected in these markets that we've been discussing? And what is the relationship between them? So it's such a great question. I love your questions. Okay, so listen, let's go back to how you calculate the credit quality of a borrower. In countries, it's total debt divided by GDP. Now, why is it GDP? Because that's essentially their tax base, right? It's, it's a proxy for their tax base. So how do you generate revenues if you're a country? Well, you tax. Mm -hmm. Okay, so GDP is a proxy for your tax base. Let's walk through that. If companies are failing, are your taxes or your tax base going to go up or down? Your tax base is going to go down, right? Your numerator, on the other hand, is the total debt, which has interest obligations. And if you're piling on deficits, it's growing as well. So your numerator is going down, your tax base is going down, and your, excuse me, your, your denominator is going down, your numerator is increasing. Again, this is part of the debt spiral, but uh, an ability to borrow money depends on how much cash flow you can produce. So a typical interest or credit metric is called EBITDA, interest coverage ratio meaning how much EBITDA or pre-tax cash flow do you have to cover the coupon on your debt, your interest expense? Well, the same thing for a government is your total debt, which has a coupon divided by your total GDP. Again, if you get more granular and your GDP is being impacted, it's shrinking because companies are failing. It implies your tax base is, is being reduced. And it's even worse because if these companies owe you taxes, <laughs> you know, not only is the, the marginal sales reduced, but the taxes that they owe you are, you know, in, 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 uh, Not gonna come in, in. in credit, in CCAA, right? Mm -hmm. So all of these things, if you, if you understand from a very, very granular level that it's a function of how much cash flow you produce divided by your interest expense, that is the most important credit metric, whether it's for corporates, corporates or governments, any government level, that's a market level of, uh, of interest or credit quality, okay? So if that makes sense to you, how does this all roll up then? Well, man, oh man, oh man again, the numerator is getting worse and the denominator is shrinking. I'll tell you the fiat currency is the error term, error term implying what completes or closes that loop. And that is more printing of money, which means the value of the money you hold right now is debasing. Do you think that, well, first of all, has the, we mentioned that Canada is at 32 basis points in, in the swap market right now. Has that changed a lot over the past 12 months? Like where were we? Yes, absolutely. Do you know where we were 12 months ago? I, I, I'm going to guess probably around, you know, high teens. Okay. Well, and, and, and that's a meaningful move, but it's, yeah. it's nothing compared to where it could go. Okay. Um, again, you know, 
it, trading this on a contract basis, if it widens a few basis points, all it means is the contract goes from an, uh, a, a parity or a par price down to 98 cents on the dollar. These contracts can go all the way down to zero, all right? They don't generally because there's recovery rates on them. But again, Lehman Brothers, that nine basis points per year, $9,000 on it to secure $10 million of loans didn't immediately jump out to a $6 million upfront payment. But boy, it goes pretty quick mm -hmm. as all sellers turn into like, oh my goodness, why have I been a seller? This looks like the market knows something I don't know. And again, when you lever a nine basis point contract 10 times, that's a 90 basis point return. These guys are like, hey, I'm getting 90 basis points for free because I'm levered 10 times. It doesn't work that way. When that leverage unwinds and you turn from a seller of protection into a buyer of protection, ugliness, ugliness ensues. Do you think Bitcoin will serve to dampen the precision of the swap market because people are using that now as a proxy for the done. insurance they, against they, the system? You're so, I love you. I love your questions, buddy. The problem is none of these big institutions are doing Bitcoin. it yet. Right. That's right. But do you so, think it's, it's possible that it will do that or will they basically, you know, did you see it, Michael Saylor on, on CNBC today? He I saw a, a short clip. Okay, so it, he yeah. thinks he, he thinks that uh, Bitcoin goes to a hundred trillion dollar market cap. Okay, mm -hmm. in order for it to get there, there's going to be a whole lot of people buying it. And who are some of the people that are going to be buying it? I, my opinion is some of these. Well, these people, right? Because it's, it's was well, these people that we've been talking about, these right? Big institutions. These They're making are the same fund. bet, basically. It's they are actually making way. reverse bet. I remember they are selling protection. Sure. They, I, I just mean they're the reverse bet. Now they're at the same pension. table. Yeah, that's their whole absolutely. Or they're at the same table because the yeah. whole financial system is at the same table. But what does it mean? It means someone is calling out this fiat shenanigans and saying, I'm going the other way. Okay. Right. And people are going to say, I got one question back to me. Well, can't the US government just sell protection on itself? And my answer to that is, do you buy fire protection from an arsonist? No, you, you don't. Okay. You cannot go out and buy fire protection from an arsonist who, and by the way, I think there's probably some legalities against selling default protection on yourself. I know there is actually, but look, this is just such an esoteric market for the common man to understand. All I'm throwing back to you is countries do default. Countries have never been in worse financial shape than they are now. I'm a high yield bond trader for 30 years and the worst balance sheets I've ever seen in my life are the current federal balance sheets, government balance sheets, mm -hmm. okay? I'm used to getting a 12% coupon. These companies, these countries right now, for the risk that they are, they're borrowing at one and a half percent, but that's manipulated. They should be borrowing at 12% just because of their credit quality right now. Mm -hmm. This is coming from a guy that's traded credit for 30 years. I might be wrong, but I tell you what, I'm certainly not buying treasury bonds at 1.36% in the 10 years. Because within that, there's a credit default swap component. It's pretty, pretty ugly. So two questions on that. Maybe rather than nullifying the usefulness or the precision of the, the, the predictive capacity of the default market, is Bitcoin an entity that serves to accelerate it? Because it's this kind of supra market bet that a lot of people will withdraw from that swap market entirely to make the bet in Bitcoin. And that will just 
accelerate accelerate the contagion well when be. it happens. I love the way you think. Okay, right now it's not happening in a big scale. Okay, sure, sure. but it, 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 it this is how things evolve, right? But this is a concept that you know that I'm not getting. I'm getting some love on this, but certainly there's no institutions like Omer's and Case de Depot aren't calling up Greg Foss in Canada and saying, "Hey, I'd really love to know your opinion on this credit default swap evaluation of Bitcoin." It's just not happening yet because people, firstly, most people, including the Case and Omer's, don't really truly understand the credit markets, and secondly. This is a small, you know, it's been a, a smaller investors game who has seen this coming because big institutions, what do they do? Well, as long as no one's else is buying Bitcoin, I don't need to buy it because it's not within my competitive universe, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And what are your colleagues or former colleagues or people that see the world through a similar lens as you? And if, if they aren't into Bitcoin, what are they making of the current climate and situation? Most of the guys, don't forget that most of the big guys that get on CNBC and all these uh, radio talk shows are equity guys. And most equity guys don't have a clue how the credit markets work. That's for sure. Okay. I've done it for 30 years. I will promise you I've seen some stuff in the credit markets relative to the equity markets that will blow your mind in terms of risk being taken in one market, but not in the other. My opinion is credit markets always lead the contagion. Okay. The plumbing of the credit markets will unwind much more quickly and in advance of any equity market meltdown. Equity guys always just look and say, oh, this is transparent. It's trading here. Jim Cramer says that, you know, this thing could fall by 10%. So, you know, Jim says 10%. So I'll believe 10%. Hey, the reality is like in 2008, when the financial system unwinds, it doesn't just fall by 10%. It almost collapses. Why? because the equity market is a subordinate claim to the bond market. Who do you think carries more weight? First of all, the bond markets are way bigger and I'm including federal governments in there that don't have equity, but remember what it means. It just means that the subordinate market being the equity market is the tail. Mm. The dog is the credit market. And when it gets upset, that tail gets flung around like a, a rag doll. And that's where people need to look. So coming back to your question, most people, particularly people that opine on Twitter and everything like that, have no idea how the credit markets work. They only look at the equity markets. And as long as everything's good in the equity markets, uh, you know, yeah, things might be a little overpriced. Is it a bubble? Well, we'll argue about whether it's a bubble. You guys are missing the forest through the trees, okay? The forest is the credit markets. And when that thing starts to get on fire, your equity markets are they get thrown around and volatility goes up to 85%, much like it did just in, two, in February of last year. And based on your experience in this market and looking you know, at all these indicators, is it possible to predict timelines here? You know, Because that's the $64 million question. Everyone wants to know, yeah, of course we know things are bad and things are screwy, but when's it all going to come so you know, crashing point, down? Sort of I thing? love, so you are spot on, okay? So you need to be a credit trader at some point. But what you also <laughs> I'm a Bitcoiner. Do, okay, well, you are a de facto credit trader, okay? Because yeah. you're, you're in advance of this. But what you need to understand is things don't actually need to default in order for them to unwind. What if the U.S. goes from... And, and let's just play a, a hypothetical question here. If the US CDS market goes from 11 basis points to 50 basis points, okay? What does that imply? That's in the five-year term and there's no other 
credit default swaps that trade longer than a five-year term. What does it imply for a 30-year treasury? What would be the default protection rate on a 30-year if the five-year was at 50 basis points? And we're just going to play a math game here. I would say, would you agree with me that it might be 150 basis points then? Is that fair? Yes, because that's Sounds what happens reasonable. is credit, yeah. credit spreads widen as you go out in tenor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that increase in 100 basis points, purely credit risk in the 30 year would knock $20 off of any treasury bond in the 30 year treasury bond, irrespective of what interest rates do. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Because the credit quality has deteriorated so that the interest, the total interest rate, which includes inflation and expectations and credit default risk has widened by 100 basis points or 1%. And the duration of a 30-year bond, the mathematical equation for duration, which is the first derivative of, of a bond price, is 20. That means if rates go up by 1%, you lose 20% on your long treasury bonds. Do you think there's a lot of insurance companies out there that are overexposed right now? to long treasury bonds? Mm -hmm. I'd say so. Why are they exposed? Because for the last 40 years, interest rates have gone, done nothing but go from 16% down to close to zero. It's a new paradigm now, guys. Wake up and all these rookies who have never seen widening interest rates or widening credit spreads are going to learn out very quickly. You better study bond math. You better know what duration and convexity in bond terms, because if you don't, you're going to lose 20% on your portfolio overnight. And you're going to say, why? And then you're going to say, well, what happens if it widens not just 100 basis points, but 200 basis points? John, these numbers are astronomical. The losses could be cal calamitous. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that word right. This is how what happens when there's a contagion. So these people that own that, do you think Mass Mutual might be thinking, wow, I own an awful lot of long-term treasuries, should I own a little bit of Bitcoin as a hedge? And my answer is, you don't just own a little bit, you better own a lot. But that hasn't started yet. And when it does, I think Michael Saylor's vision of what Bitcoin could be worth on a global market cap basis relative to other financial assets is spot on. Over what time period? I can't, uh, can I give you a price and not a time? Because that's what I, I can do that. I can give you a time, but not a price or a price, but not a time, but I'm not going to do both. How about sure. this? Within sure. my kid's lifetime. Is that fair? So why yeah. do I own Bitcoin for my kids? Mm -hmm. Very simply. So I'm not going to tell you within five years. I'm highly confident that it'll start this process. It's like everything slowly, then suddenly mm -hmm. it'll start slowly, but the process is starting right now. And so the, with regards to these debt markets and the swap markets for governments, like even irrespective of Bitcoin, are they, is there like, are they close to being at a tipping point or can this go on for a hell of a lot longer? So this is the key. I do not know. I will tell you, and there's lots of studies that have been done. How, how, it, how long does it take for a typical global reserve currency to fail or lose global reserve of currency status? Um, I'm not going to predict it based on history because the histories are, you know, the, the, the statistical uh, uh, pool of analysis is pretty low, but I'll just tell you, we're, we're running up against statistical averages where the U.S. is prone to lose its global reserve currency status. 
uh, relative to history. Uh, again, a, a very low uh, or a small pool of, of uh, analysis, but here's the key. And this is the most important key, okay? The world is all fiat. And in my opinion, Bitcoin is the only solution. You could say gold and we could argue over gold and what, what its advantage, advantages or disadvantages are to Bitcoin. That's an argument for Peter Schiff. Um, I hope that someday that, that argument will take place. But here's what I do know. Gold is a rounding error in the global financial system. Okay. If gold's a rounding error, Bitcoin's even more rounding error. In my opinion, and I talked to Robert Breedlove about this, I think there's $900 trillion of global financial assets, including real estate. Robert thinks it's closer to 500 trillion and it's because he nets out debt. But I'll tell him, hey, I'm a debt guy. You're not allowed to net me out. I want to be an <laughs> enterprise value guy and it's $900 trillion, okay? Mm -hmm. John, is it crazy thus to think that Sailor might be onto something that 100 trillion of that 900 trillion becomes Bitcoin because of the things that I've uh, uh, spoken about here? And it won't happen overnight. And it's not going to gap to, you know, $5 million a coin. But right now at 50 or 40, I don't even care where it is right now. It's a rounding error. It's the best hedge I've ever seen in my life to this central bank shenanigans that have been happening since I've been born. So to answer your question, long way short, it may or may not happen in my lifetime, knock on my head, but I'm very concerned that it happens within my kid's lifetime. Right. And just to be clear, the valuation framework that you've used to put Bitcoin at a fair value of 130 some odd thousand US today, that obviously tracks the, the swap market. So as we see widening in the swap market, the implied value is going to go Can up Can I put with your that. name on the same paper and we'll, we'll co-author it? I've already authored it, um, but we're, we're thinking about putting a book out, uh, the, the people I did it for, because I've been on some podcasts where, you know, People, you, you see, they, they're so intense, but can you explain more? Can you explain more? The funny thing is it took me 30 years, 30 years of studying these markets. It's not something you come up with just in one podcast or anything, all right? Mm -hmm. um, so yes, but man, oh man, you're onto it. As those spreads widen, the implicit value of Bitcoin increases. Mm -hmm. That's it, man. That's that, that is the correlation. As credit spreads widen, the value of Bitcoin increases. Not right now, and I'm going to throw this out to you. Right now, we're at historic low yields in high yield. High yield recently traded below 4%. Man, that doesn't sound like too good high yield to me. Right. All right. That's 4%. And I could subtract expected default rates. And I've done that math for some people and realize you're earning negative real returns on high yield bonds. You know, I traded it for 32 years. All I can say is sucka. Um, so I want to ask you this, and this may be, this is a little bit of a departure from what we've been discussing so far, but a lot of the talking heads these days, uh, politicians don't frame it this way, but you know, your, your famous hedge fund and, and equity guys do, um, you know, the narrative goes like this, a lot of money's been put in the system, the vaccine's going to come and you know, the, the virus will be gone. It'll be a post-war, you know, crack up boom sort of scenario. Do you have any insights or, or you know, what, what's your kind of take on, on where we go from here in the short term? Only math and they're wrong. Okay. It's only math and they are wrong with 3.6 times total global debt to GDP. I could walk my one, one or, or a grade one student through this. 
it is mathematically impossible to ex escape this debt spiral. So it's, it's just a matter of how much time it takes to play out, not well, I think we all agree no, that you, we you can't it. get don't, out. Don't, of it. don't, do not, do not, <laughs> don't walk it back. Exactly, it. it's yeah. just a matter of time. But can can there be artificial yeah, booms the in, debt, the, in okay. the meantime? You can monetize the debt, and then how do all those uh, treasury bonds? And by the way, how do all those pension funds? They're, they're they they say they're they're funded right now at an eight percent prescribed rate. But listen. If you're using an 8% prescribed rate in your hedge fund when long or when 10 year treasuries at 1.36%, you're implying that you're, you're anticipating equity market returns in the area of double digits for the rest of the time. You're, you're playing the system right there. And all of a sudden, these pension funds that pretend they're funded, let alone the ones that are unfunded pension funds, um, you know, they, they become unfunded and the system says, well, what happened to this? I was counting on these. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, benefits and, and whatnot. And as a, you know, all these funds, it's part of the problem because they've had bonds that have performed very well. And it's only math. When interest rates go from 16% down to 1%, your bond portfolio does very well. Ray Dalio's risk parity uh, model was set entirely on that concept. When risk increases, treasury bonds tend to fall in yield and rise in price. That's over. That is done. That's That story has played itself out. And right now, when risk increases, it's going to be risking risk increasing from the federal level, i.e. the root of the system. Mm -hmm. So bingo. Yes, Bitcoin will go up in value as people realize that the credit quality of federal governments is suspect. Not the inflation risk, the credit risk. Yeah. And it, it almost... Well, it seems quite clear that the more these governments do to try to get out of this mess they've created, the quicker they they bring the the conclusion. We're about, so lucky, uh, right? We're so lucky. We live in a G20 country with the longest undefended border right next to the richest country in the world. Okay, mm -hmm. so we're Canada. We we have problems, but we've never experienced the other. There's 180 or some odd fiat countries in the world. And, and we're protected because we're a G7 country, uh, luckily, you know, living next to the richest country in the world. Okay, so Canada, US, they have no idea what this is. But let's go and talk to some people in Lebanon. Let's talk to people in Venezuela. Let's talk to people in Latin America that have seen this, not just once, but many times. Sensei's there, grew up in Patagonia, in, uh, in, in uh, Argentina. He saw his parents lose money over twice in within their lifetime basically the government took everything and he said that's why i love bitcoin and that's exactly what canadians need to understand but we've just never experienced it in our lifetime yeah but it's only math math doesn't lie you guys i may not be the smartest guy in the room i'm certain i'm not the smartest guy in the room and if i ever am we're in big trouble but i sort of look to mathematics I don't look to subjective politicians and modern monetary theorists that have never traded credit in their lives to say, oh, hey, I'm Stephanie Kelton and I work at uh, Stony Brook College. So I'm going to say that, you know, you don't, deficits don't matter. Uh, I'm sorry, Stephanie, work on a credit desk and you'll realize that they matter. Yeah. You know, I, I try to tell people so often when we're, I'm having this type of conversation that you know, people think it, things only happen over there, like you're saying in, in Latin America or in the Middle East or, or wherever, anyone, anywhere but here. And, you know, I try to remind them that there's no, nothing fundamentally different that 
of anything in mathematics in our is system. universal exactly and everything is structured is the same way we're just on different timelines and so you better you know stop thinking that you're special and actually do something about it but i want to ask you one last question about uh this stuff and then we'll go whole hog into bitcoin okay. but you say you know it, it's it's only math and i understand what you're saying when you say that but obviously there's a subject of psychological component to contagion and to the assessment of these things, right? Like what is my assessment of the risk of, you know, credit risk of fill in the blank country. Um, and <clears throat> the other elements of this, the, the other psychological element there is that once people grok Bitcoin, once they fall down that rabbit hole and they really start to see what it represents, um, their their perspective can oftentimes change very quickly, both on the legitimacy of the existing framework and system, and also the possibility of a superior system and an upgraded system built upon Bitcoin. And that can change their behavior very quickly. Now, I'm not even speaking about the topic that I really like to dig into, which is in people's personal lives, but I just mean if you're a risk manager of the nature that we've been discussing and, thing, and th that switch flips and you actually kind of, you, you build a far different perspective and risk framework and option universe than you ever had before, then I would think that that means that they, these things could change far quicker than even they could in the past. Wow. You know, I couldn't, I, again, you should be a credit trader um, because uh, you're absolutely right from my, my experience. I'll just say the same thing. Uh, let's say Lehman Brothers was a, was a country in 2006 and in 2009, it failed. Okay, very full stop. Credit is credit. Lehman was bigger than many countries in the world. Okay, just on a relative basis. So, so let, let's talk market cap. Okay, um, and I hate to say this, but Lehman was also more important than many countries in the world. This is not to diss any other countries. Let's just talk about global financial markets. Mm -hmm. um, I will say two things. I'm an engineer. I'm visual. If anybody out there has not looked at tradeblock.com, and watched the blockchain in action and the beauty of blocks being built in the mempool and the and the various exchanges trading bitcoin which trades oogles of, of dollar value on a daily basis it is a thing of beauty so when these people who work at these big hedge funds don't forget i i didn't work at a big hedge fund but we we did quite well in the global financial crisis um uh when they see these things in action, yes, that flip, that switch does flip. These guys have never owned a Bitcoin wallet. They've never sent money to Australia without knowing the counterparty and it settles in 10 minutes. And if you went to your bank and tried to send money to someone you didn't know in Australia using an international wire, wire transfer, it's, it's comical, the difference between the, the ease of one and the complication of the other. So anyone in finance who falls down that rabbit hole and is true to themselves will realize it quickly. Now, John, here's a big problem. If they listen to Janet Yellen and they're attached at the hip to Janet Yellen, their bias is to not believe it and not to do the research. And as a risk manager, the worst thing you can ever do is stick to old principles. You need to change your, your decisions when the information changes, right? Why did you change your position? Well, sir, because the facts changed. Peter Schiff may never change his true marketing ploy on the internet, but I guarantee you his son is making inroads into his brain, okay? Because why? Because his son, I sent Spencer Schiff money on Spencer Schiff's birthday, just cause, 
Spencer Schiff, <laughs> Spencer Schiff admitted to me that he owned a Bitcoin wallet. And his father called me out on internet and said, Spencer is 18 years old. He can be foolish. What's your, why are you such a fool? Or what's your excuse? And I just said, hey, Mr. Schiff, and he never responded to me. I just basically said, here's the problem with the world. When you are talking your book rather than in, in, uh, uh, understanding the trends that are happening in the world and understanding what Michael, Michael Saylor knows and all engineers know that Bitcoin is the purest form of monetary energy. And when your work, which is energy and your time and your actual physical energy is being stored in something called fiat, which is being debased versus stored in something which is beautiful and calculable and math and code like Bitcoin, it's game over. Very simple. If you have zero exposure to Bitcoin, you are taking immeasurable risks compared to if you have a 5% portfolio weight, just in case Sailor is right. Okay. And every risk manager worth their salt knows this. Could they be biased? Could their big boss be telling them, I'm not going to own Bitcoin because I work at a big bank and I know that Bitcoin is the end of me and I'm going to try and delay the inevitable as long as possible. 100% that's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just going to be so interesting to see the dominoes fall when this gigantic Supra insurance bet is off on the horizon, pulling with, with you know, an irresistible gravity, just affecting everybody and every asset in the space. I mean, Sailor's a great example. I mean, he's a risk manager in terms of his, his company's balance sheet, his treasury, right? He has to Absolutely. try to manage the risk of that. And to see someone make such a bold bet on Bitcoin, I think is just indicative of what you come to understand Bitcoin is when you put the time into it. Now, everyone's personality is a bit different. Sailor is obviously, you know, outside the box thinker, maybe a little, a little bit uh, more of a risk taker than most, but just the fact that, because we, we had talked about this in the space, like eventually corporates are going to put this on their balance sheet, but we were being maybe more conservative and saying it'll be one, two, five, maybe 10%. And then, you know, people are coming in now and, and making bigger moves than that. And I think it speaks to the fact that once you get this, the, the contrast between Bitcoin and what it represents and all the other options available in the financial universe and what they represent is so great that it's really difficult not to devote more and more resources to the former. So Sailor is a brilliant risk manager. Okay. He's doing what every CFO should be doing. He is borrowing at artificially low interest rates and turning fiat destruction into capital creation. Now he just did it in big size. Okay. And then man is certainly has a history of, you know, he was one of the first people in the dot com, not dot com rather in the, in the domain uh, name, uh, he purchased a lot of these domain names and he bought hope.com and has do donated it to the Bitcoin cause. I mean, how brilliant is that, right? That's awesome. So yeah. don't tell me that this guy doesn't know what he's doing on a risk management pr perspective. Now he's doing it in pretty big size. So there's no question. But the, his recent, recent convertible bond was priced at a coupon of zero. Now, a convertible bond is not a regular bond. And most of that uh, most of the price of the of the convert occurs in the optionality in the under option uh, in the undervalue, excuse me, in the underlying equity option in a convertible bond. So that interest rate itself is not indicative of his true borrowing cost, but it doesn't matter. That's a 0% coupon on a convertible bond. And he's selling optionality on his company to people. He's selling vol, right? He sold vol to options guys that want to buy his vol. 
And they are taking and getting exposure to Bitcoin indirectly through Michael Saylor's MicroStrategy. It's brilliant, but it's a rounding error. It's so minuscule compared to the big money, compared to if CPPIB says, geez, you know, we have this pension fund that we're managing on behalf of Canadians and we own zero Bitcoin and I need to move one or 2% into that. Oh my God. First of all, that buying power is massive. And then secondly, Omers and Casa de Po and CalPERS and all these other funds in Canada, North America, they start looking, they say, what the heck does CPPIB know that we don't know? We better get some of that. Mm -hmm. And again, this is a rounding error down here, ladies and gentlemen. If you think $900 trillion of global financial assets, and you say, could Bitcoin get 5% of that market? And I think it could. That's $45 trillion, $45 trillion divided by 21 million coins. Ooh, that starts looking like a pretty nice asymmetric trade to me. Mm -hmm. So let, let's start talking about that now, because in Canada, you know, because one of the aspects of what you're talking about here is not just the fact that people don't really, quote unquote, get Bitcoin yet, but there's a lot of latent demand that hasn't had the proper channels from an institutional perspective to actually get into this market. An institution can't, you know, custody their own Bitcoins, or at least it's very difficult and they probably don't have the mandate or the, the you know, they're not allowed to do it in that way. The trust products crack the door open for that in, in Canada and the US and, and you were involved in that. And then the recent news we were discussing a few minutes ago is the ETF came online, I think last Thursday or Friday, and there's over half a billion dollars in inflows into that already, which among other things says, there's a lot of pent up demand for this to be in the wrapper of the traditional legacy financial people, whether it's the advisors or the institutions or the, the large funds. So what's your take on, uh, you know, that whole dynamic. Thanks. A great, a great setup. Okay. Look, um, let's, let's be honest. So first of all, I need to make a shout out to Sean Cumbie, uh, who was my partner at, uh, three IQ, the CIO who went on the stand against the OSC Ontario securities commission and won. we took the OSC to court and we won the right to bring a closed end fund to Canada listed on the Toronto stock exchange, a brilliant victory for Sean, for 3IQ and for Canadian freedom of expression in the financial markets. Okay, so that closed end fund, uh, over time, it, it, it got up to about a billion dollars, um, which is pretty substantial. And I think Canadians just in that fund made probably close to half a billion dollars on a mark to market basis. Okay, so that's a really great thing for Canada. Um, that is a closed end fund. We all know the difference between closed end funds and ETFs and eventually an ETF was coming. And I'm pretty impressed that uh, Purpose uh, got, uh, got approved and that ETF is up and running in Canada. And as you mentioned, the three-day flows, so it's only been open for three days, John, uh, over half a billion Canadian dollars invested. I'm going to make a prediction here. Do not take me to task on this. There is a large institution standing behind the bid in the Bitcoin BTCC ETF. Okay, there is a large Canadian financial institution, and I'm not sure who it is, but it's trading that way. That just said, I'm going to get my Bitcoin exposure through Som Seif's ETF. And Som Seif is very well connected in Canada. In fact, he's done some stuff, if you guys do your homework, with some very large Canadian pension funds. Okay, I'm not predicting anything. It's a, you know, my spider senses are tingling, but something that has grown in three days to half a billion dollars is bigger than retail bigger than retail. 
Okay. And why is that? Because one of these big financial institutions has said, I get it. I need more than zero. Because if I own zero Bitcoin, I am irresponsibly short the best hedge in the, in the global financial markets. So my fiduciary duty is to get some. And I'm going to take the avenue of going through SOMSEF and Purpose Investments. And there's half a billion. And I'm going to guesstimate that half a billion that was raised in three days, over a third of that is one or two big financial institutions that just said, hey, I need 100 million. I need 200 million just to get on the board. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. This Again, what's $100 million for someone that manages, you know, $180 billion. It barely, you know, if you need 1% exposure to anything just to make it worth an analyst's time to look at it, the numbers are mind boggling. It's rounding errors. Guys, don't overthink this. When the big money comes in, they need to squeeze out everything. And they only come in when the guy down the street goes in. Uh-oh, BlackRock's in. BlackRock says they're, what, the, what was the word he used? The, dabbling. Dabbling. Okay, thanks, Rick Ryder. <laughs> thanks. You're dabbling. Hey, guess what? When you're a trillion dollar fund and you dabble in something, people get blown out of the water. <laughs> like, they, you know, they're an elephant. Hey, I, my elephant, I'm dabbling and the elephant, you know, happened to move his tail and he just blew out three other guys right out of the room. Mm-hmm. And that's just what happens when big guys dabble. And if big guys dabble in the US, then the big guys in Canada are like, what does Rick Ryder know that I don't know? Mm-hmm. And then they just go, it goes circular. Yeah. And so you mentioned that most people understand the difference between a, a closed fund and ETF. Uh, could you expand on, on what the differences are briefly? And also I've seen you talking about, you know, a trade and I know a lot of people uh, may not trade, but just out of, out of interest and curiosity, you were, there was a premium on the ETF, I believe, and, and yes. there's been a discount on the fund. And you were saying there was an opportunity there, but I think even beyond that, that question, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on is how should people be playing this? Cause if right now, I think even still today, there's a discount on, on QBTC. Um, and let's, let's just say the ETF is, is there's no premium or discount. It's just trading yeah. as it should be. Uh, should, is it a wiser investment to take the five, 10% discount on QBTC and, and, you know, when they sell I'm it in June or something? I'm very disappointed in the Canadian hedge fund community up until this point, but I think the uh, the uh, failing point for the first three days was the ability to borrow BTCC and short it. Okay, the creation redemption process in an ETF is very important. So I'll, I'll walk people through the process of the difference between a closed end fund and an ETF. So a closed end fund is very simply this, ladies and gentlemen. Let's just say you go out and you start a closed end fund and you raise a hundred dollars in that closed end fund and you put it in uh, an asset and we won't even use Bitcoin. We'll call it an asset of uh, a look around my desk. How about, we'll put, okay, we'll call it Bitcoin. Uh, you get you get $100 worth of Bitcoin, but that's all you hold in that closed end fund. Now that closed end fund doesn't reopen for new money every single day, but someone who says, wow, there's $100 of Bitcoin in that fund And guess what? I have no other way of owning it in my RRSP or TFSA or any other tax advantaged account. And I own it on my wallet, but I can't hold that in my RRSP or TFSA. So I want that tax advantage. So guess what? I'll go out and pay $104 for that because that $4 premium offsets and and, and is still 
uh, that premium you're paying is still advantageous on an after-tax basis, okay? So then that closed-end fund starts trading at a premium to its net asset value. That closed-end fund can reopen on occasion, and it does. And you look at GBTC, the Grayscale Trust in the U.S., which is, I think it's close to $20 billion right now, um, and, and QBTC, which was a billion Canadian dollars, there were times when those funds would trade over 25% premium. And people would say, who in their right mind would go out and own it? Well, I just described one, one instance where on a tax advantage basis, yes, you do pay that amount because after tax, it's advantageous for you to do that. So they can reopen these funds on a, on a regular basis, but they don't do it every night. What is an ETF? An ETF is, and, and by the same token, those funds, let's say, can trade at a discount. Now, they never do until you live in Canada and the stupidity of Canadians selling the closed-end fund at a 10% discount to buy purpose, maybe because, and I'm going to throw this out, maybe because purpose only costs $10 and GBTC is trading at $60, <laughs> maybe they say, hey, I'm going to take some money out without even doing the math. So you guys got to look at bitbo.io. Bitbo.io is the best Bitcoin dashboard I've ever seen. And it, within that dashboard are the real-time premiums or discounts that these closed-end funds trade at. Okay, what is an ETF? An ETF has a creation redemption process that occurs on a daily basis, which means the net asset value of that fund should never be meaningful, meaningfully different from the underlying security. Why? Because they reopen it essentially every single day at 4 p.m meaning they go out and they buy the Bitcoin they need if there was net buying of that fund or they sell the amount of Bitcoin they need to sell if there was net selling of that fund. But every single trade does not imply a, in an efficient market, every single trade does not actually imply that there's a new buyer or a new seller of Bitcoin. What if a hedge fund is on the other side and they borrowed shares in BTCC and that creation redemption process doesn't take place because the buyers are getting shares from the hedge fund because the hedge fund's selling them on a short basis. They don't need to run to the market to buy Bitcoin. The hedge fund has sold them their implied Bitcoin. So what does the hedge fund do? It says, hey, there's this other asset in Canada that says exactly the same underlying and it's trading at a 10% discount. What's the smart hedge fund supposed to do? They sell BTCC and they buy QBTC at a 10% discount and they take it to the bank because it's a risk free trade. And let's just say, and I'm not a huge fan of leverage, but let's just say this hedge funds levered three times. Hey man, that's a 30% return on capital with zero risk, except for your borrow on BTCC. And in an accretion redemption uh, fund, like an ETF is, there's no borrow risk on that. They want people to be shorting it. They don't want to run to the market at the end of the day. They want net selling and net buying to wash itself out in the market before it needs to settle on a net purchase or a net sale every day at four o'clock. So what happens to the closed end funds with the ETFs coming on? I understand. Well, I think there's two ETFs in Canada now. It seems like the floodgates. Three now. Oh, yeah. Opening oh, excuse and, me. Only two, only two. Correct. Evolve and uh, BTCC, right? Purpose. And then I, I think there's more coming down the pike. It'll eventually happen in the US, of course. What happens to these closed end funds when, you know, a, a more efficient vehicles available on the market? Do they get rolled into an ETF? Do they just close? Like what, how, what's, how, how will this play out? So great question. I think, and this is only my gut. And remember, I sold my shares in 3IQ. I am no longer a set, uh, an owner of 3IQ shares, not the fund. I still own the fund. I do not own shares in the management company of 3IQ. 
So I'm speculating here. My speculation is they roll QBTC into an ETF. Very simple. And once they roll it into an ETF, what happens to that premium Goes or right. discount rather? Goes Gone. Right. It's, it's evaporating. You so just you, collected 10% free money. If you can get QBTC at a discount right now and that ends up being the case, they roll into an ETF or in June, I think it, you they, have a redemption, a redemption at redemption NAV, off. right? Yeah. So it's kind of silly not to take advantage of that discount. How, how about if I say no comment, but you are 100% correct? Is that fair? <laughs> That's this fair, is not yeah. trading. Not financial this, advice. This is not financial advice, but John Vallis is a. How do I say your last name, by the way? Is it Vallis or Vallis? That was, that was perfect. Vallis? First time, yeah. Okay. John Vallis is 100% correct, ladies and gentlemen, but neither of us is giving financial advice. Absolutely. Um, so when this starts happening, so ETFs are coming on board. Is there any distinction between the different providers or is it just, are they just playing on brand and management team and, you and know. Fee. And fee, right? And, Don't forget and, fee. And fee. So but, purpose is at 1%, all right? Purpose is at 1%. QBTC has a 1.9%, around 1.95% uh, management fee. So right there, uh, apples to apples, everything else being equal, you would be in the purpose ETF rather than QBTC trading at parity. To, to Bitcoin uh, with a 1.95% management fee versus a 1% management fee, right? So if that's how the pricing goes um, in, a, in a perfect world, uh, or not a perfect world, but in a world where uh, QBTC does not change its management fees from 1.95% uh, down to 1%, which Purpose is, uh, uh, got, and Purpose actually has a better brand uh, globally, uh, certainly than uh, 3IQ does, uh, I would argue, yeah, you know, they will lose assets. And what will happen when you say, how do they lose assets? Well, this redemption feature, right? This gen once a year June redemption feature may in fact be the unraveling of assets out of QBTC, but it doesn't hurt the unit holder. It, it hurts the fund management company. So do P are people actually that sensitive to management fees? Uh, my, my, my thought is yes, maybe more than I thought, because, you know, why in the world is it trading at a 10% discount right now? Because everyone's just saying, oh, well, one has 1.95% management fees. The other one has 1% management fees. They're not very good at math, but at the end of the day, you know, they're doing something, something's happening. And I can't tell you why exactly, but I just can't believe this exists. I still wish I worked with Weckerly at the hedge fund. I guarantee you this premium would be narrowing a lot quicker than it is right now. Yeah. And just for everyone listening, um, kind of to timestamp this, I just checked on Bitbo. The discount on uh, QBTC is seven and a half percent. The discount on the Galaxy Fund product, Novogratz's thing, is minus 15%. So why? QBTC has an ETF in the pipe. Novogratz doesn't. Novogratz should go out and buy Sean Cumbie's Arx Novum ETF, which he has had approved. I don't know, just throwing these trades out there to you guys. Like, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the, I, I, I see that anyone who owns a closed end fund right now better have an ETF application or you're going to be losing assets. It's just, come on, you guys have been in this business long enough. Structurally speaking, what we were saying for, for QBTC applies to BTCG as well, right? I mean, they're basically As the long same as thing. they get the ETF approval. And at some point, it's not worth, you know, what does, it's a race to the bottom in fees here, John. I mean, anyone who managed, has managed assets in their life has to realize that, look, if you manage a trillion asset, a trillion dollars in assets, but your, your fees are like 
three basis points. I don't want to be in that business. Like I was in the business of two and 20. Now that business is going the way of the dodo bird as it should, but now it's maybe, you know, now it's ten, uh, two and 10 or it's one and 10. It doesn't matter. It's still there, but you know, doing stuff for a hundred basis points, don't forget custody fees on, on that carves out a pretty big uh, chunk of that hundred basis points before you even pay salaries or anything to employees. So, you know, you gotta be really savvy in the, in the fund management world before you make these decisions. Oh, I'm going to turn into an ETF. Well, ETFs of less than a hundred million, you know, those things tend to fail over time just because they're not economical. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why is purpose so good? Well, because purpose is built a ETF stable and Bitcoin just has to be happens to be one of them and they can spread those fees over their infrastructure that manages ETFs in a whole bunch of different stables. And for about two decades, they've blasted their ads to you on the airplanes before your movie comes on. I'm okay with that. Like <laughs> this guy, look, this guy knows something. Um, again, you, you need to do some work as to who he's been in bed with uh, yeah. in terms of the big pension funds. And I'll throw out a name for you, Ethereum Capital. Okay. Who was he in bed with in, with Ethereum Capital and who therefore may be the big buyer behind? And a speculation, this is not investment advice. This is just having been in the markets for 30 years in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just horsing around, but I do, you know, he's been on the, the, he's been paying for the advice for Air Canada hey, and for he quite sold some a time. portion of his company. He sold a big port or 10% of his company to Alliance, Alliance, right? With, which is uh, Mohammed El Arian uh, for a big whack of money. So, hey, do, do some uh, first degree of separation. Do you think Alliance might be the guys that are behind the Somsef uh, purpose bid? Right. Wouldn't that be something? They already own 10% of, uh, of, of purpose. What if Allianz or with Mohammed basically said, I'm sick of listening to Peter Schiff. I'm going to start listening to Robert Breedlove. Okay. So Peter Schiff is out at Allianz and Robert Breedlove is in. And all of a sudden they say, Hey, I need exposure to this Bitcoin thing. I might as well do it through a company I own 10% of. So, Hey, yeah, I need, I need 5 trillion of this to begin with, but I better start getting something. So hey, here's an order for purpose. Here's a 200 million Canadian dollar order to a company I already own 10% of again, speculation. Sure. You got to understand, guys, you got to do, you got to understand the uh, inter interwoven nature of a lot of these uh, products. And that's how the financial market works. Totally. Um, all right. Up to speed to something more relevant to your work today and not so much in the past. Uh, a couple of days ago, yesterday, day before, uh, HUT 8 and Validus come out saying, you know, there's uh, formal discussions happening about uh, cooperation. Um can you just tell me what Validus is all about and then, you know, break into the, the, the conversations with HUD-8? For anyone listening, I have, I have paid John zero for all this promo and I, I, I will not pay him for anything. But man, thank you for asking that question because I'm involved in a company that's extremely exciting from an engineer perspective. Okay. Again, my McGill engineering background. So Validus Power is, a, uh, is basically a mobile solution for anything that needs power generated uh, uh, either in peaking, so for a city uh, that runs off of natural gas. So we wheel in these beautiful 35 megawatt trailers um, into an installation and within six and a half hours, you can be up and running, provided you have a natural gas feed, you can be up and running producing 35 megawatts of electricity for anything. So is small town, uh, a mining institution, not a Bitcoin mining institution, but let's say a Northern Ontario gold mining operation. So rather than wheeling in all, or sorry, building in all these expensive uh, transmission lines, you just get a, a, a source of uh, 
liquid natural gas and liquefied natural gas and you run a turbine off of liquefied natural gas. So what is a turbine? A turbine is basically a jet engine, right? So that's all it is. You wheel a jet engine in on a, on a, uh, a trailer truck. And you'll say, hey, that sounds really exciting, Foss, but come on, that, the world doesn't work that way. Well, it actually does now because the world can be done as follows. And this is our relationship with HUD-8. There's a tremendous amount of flare gas that's being vented into the atmosphere in North America. Um, imagine that flare gas, which sometimes it's not burned, but sometimes it is burning and people see these, these flares on these uh, oil, um, in, in these oil fields. You take that natural gas and you cleanse it because it's dirty. You cleanse it the first step because you can't run dirty natural gas through your turbine. So you cleanse it, then you run it through your turbine and create 35 megawatts of electricity and you start mining Bitcoin, okay? And you wheel all these things in on trucks. It's, we call it a Mad Max, okay? Think of the movie Mad Max and you bring all these trucks right into the, right into the oil field. And then you upload via Starlink your mine Bitcoin to the internet. This is pretty cool. And then you say, what if its ability is to reattach it to the grid and stabilize the grid in the event of rolling power blackouts? So you're not mining Bitcoin, you flip that switch off and you turn it to providing peaking power at which they were uh, paying something like $57,000 in Texas during the last calamity. You're not mining Bitcoin at that price. You're you're powering the grid, you're stabilizing the grid and, and earning peaking returns on your natural gas. So it's been cleansed. You're earning energy for energy. So Bitcoin, which is digital energy, you're earning, earning it for your natural gas energy rather than venting it into the atmosphere. Your carbon capture, you're cleaning the environment. There's no acid rain coming down around all these oil fields. You're cleaning the environment because of Bitcoin mining. And if you're attached to the grid, which is very simple to do, you're stabilizing the electricity grid. Mm -hmm. I'm so proud to be part of this. And Jamie Leverton, CEO of HUT8, had the vision to say, we wanna be your partner. We wanna lock you guys up from the Bitcoin mining perspective. That's where we sit. With all due respect to uh, some of my friends, Marty Bent and everything, we're not trying to compete with you guys. And there's Stephen Barber called me out and said, <laughs> look, you guys are false advertising. First of all, I'm not part of HUD-8. Secondly, this is a way bigger. There'll be more than one winner in this space. This is about Bitcoin mining, cleaning the environment. We're not boiling the oceans. We're cleaning the environment and we're stabilizing the electricity grid, you guys. So Validus Power, privately held company, CEO, Todd Short, uh, brilliant guy, happens to be a Canadian uh, living in Toronto. And we got together and he didn't really know much about Bitcoin. And I didn't think that his ability to deliver these Mad Max solutions would be nearly as cool as we have done. So my, and that's all very interesting. And my, my big, a couple of questions on that is, so it's, it's not like plugging in, like you mentioned Marty and Steve to the natural gas at source. It's sourcing the natural gas and then using them in these mobile power generating uh, Could be, could things, be, but don't right? forget, we take it, remember, we could go right to the oil field and we cleanse the natural gas. The reason they can't do it on 35 megawatt scales is because their gas is dirty. Okay, our 35 megawatt gas turbines need clean gas or else the maintenance costs on the turbines are excessive and it doesn't work. Mm 
-hmm. Well, we have a cleanser. We clean the gas first. It's part of the whole uh, uh, cycle. We clean the gas, remove the impurities, burn the gas right at the field and create Bitcoin, mm -hmm. much like they're doing. But their projects, this is no disrespect to them. Mm -hmm. Our projects just can be bigger. That's all it is to it. Ours mm -hmm. are 35 megawatt generators. And they can... Because the question with Bitcoin mining is always, or, or one of the big questions is the, the cost of energy. The, the, this method of, of producing uh, and bringing energy to the mining instrument uh, machines can still be economical. It's about industry. 0% cost. This is sorry, zero, $0 cost when everything's all said and done. That's why it is economical. How is it $0 cost? Because can I, I don't want to... <laughs> Some, en some energy companies will pay you to take their gas. Right. Right? Because they can't drill for oil if they're flaring too much. That's regulated. Mm -hmm. So they say, hey, I'm capped on my oil drilling, drilling because I'm flaring too much gas. So take some. Here it is. Not only is it free, I'm paying you. Hey, is that ever cool? But, you know, the, the, the machine itself, the big tractor trailer has a cost as well. And the people operating well, has that, a cost. That's all so. part of it. You know, okay. So when, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, people always say, what's your cost of electricity? You know, is it four cents a kilowatt hour? That generally is the tipping point, right? In these calculations. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say that in some of these projects, it's less than four cents a kilowatt hour. Why? Because mm -hmm. the government, that's not the government, rather, the, the company will pay you to get rid of their waste. Right. Now, as part of the economic process, will that change? Yeah, as competition comes in, people will say, hey, but here's the thing, you know, Bitcoin right now costs about 11,000 bucks of Bitcoin plus or minus the mine. It's trading at 50. You have a lot of, you know, VIG, you have a lot of Delta in there to increase your cost of electricity. Just as long as you're not blowing up your turbines, because these turbines are $20 million machines. You're right. Just, in, just, to, just to make sure you're not running dirty gas through it, and you know destroying your turbine so all of this is part of an economic calculation that says is it profitable to mine bitcoin and hands down under these circumstances yes it is do markets change they always change does that mean you switch from mining bitcoin to flipping to powering the grid well at the appropriate time you do so is is the premise or you know the business model right now so Bitcoin is kind of the energy buyer of last resort. You know, it's been characterized that way. And it's because, you know, you need really cheap energy to mine it. And it's a way to monetize, you know, waste energy and that kind of stuff. But surely, as you said, with the example of Texas and any other market that's willing to pay more for energy is obviously, a, you know, it's more advantageous to sell it to that market. So it, going into the Bitcoin industry, is that indicative of, there not being many other markets for mobile energy uh, right now? Or? Uh, no, sir, that is not uh, correct. Uh, we're dealing with a certain tomato grower at, or sorry, certain in Point Pelee. Did you, so Point Pelee, you know where that is, right? In Lake Erie. Okay. Uh, that's where we have a number of greenhouses uh, in, in Southern Ontario. Now that happens to be did you know that Point Pelee is actually more south than the Northern California border? So Point Pelee, which no. <laughs> guts into Lake Ontario, has a tremendous apple, sorry, not apple, uh, tomato and cucumber. It supplies all cucumbers to Walmart, for example. People don't know this, but all cucumbers that you buy at Walmart come out of Point Pelee, Ontario. 
they have greenhouses in the summer, sorry, in the winter that run that require a tremendous amount of electricity. The grid, the Ontario grid is charging them a much higher price than they'd be able to earn or to, to, that, that they would be required to pay if they had a mobile generator or turbine like we provide in their backyard. So there's an example. And also, there's small towns in Ontario that think that the Ontario Hydro One are charging them an excessive rate for their power. So would they look at this as an option? I will tell you that we are talking to people that are considering that. Why? Again, it's a creative destruction. It's capitalism. The low cost wins. Can you do a combination of both of them? Yes, you have to, because Point Pelee, even if they wanted all the power they need from the Ontario grid, it cannot supply it to them. It's, it's at capacity right now. So this is an option for us to continue as Canadians to provide cucumbers to everybody in the world that shops at Walmart. And is it an opportunity to just take these wherever uh, a, a certain jurisdiction will allow you to sell energy back to the grid and just, you know, basically play an arbitrage? Well, that, that, that in itself is, uh, it, you know, that's fairly restrictive right now. You're right. Okay. Texas is the place where you can do that, but a lot of, insta uh, a lot of uh, regulatory environments do not allow you to do that. And how does the business model change? And not that I foresee a regulatory change like this coming down the pike, but let's say that, you know, the natural gas and the oil producers you know, restrictions are lifted on, on their flaring and what they're, you know, the, the, <clears throat> how they have to manage their flaring per uh, unit of oil extracted or something like that. If that goes away, does the business model of a, of, of a company like this, where you're, you're, you're accessing that cheap energy because those companies have an obligation to do something with that, or, or there's an incentive economically for them to give you energy so that they can continue to produce energy that they can then sell. So I'm a probabilities guy, right? Um, I play probabilities my whole life. Uh, let's take it back to the Bitcoin. Am I 100% certain Bitcoin's going to uh, uh, $5 million a coin? No, but there's a greater than zero chance it's going to uh, much higher prices, okay? And then you play your expected probability on a pricing basis. Let's play the same game with the power. Um, Given Joe Biden just got into office, do you think it's more likely or less likely that uh, flaring is going to be increased? Flaring regulation will be increased or decreased? I'm just throwing that out to you. Probably more. There you go. So you start playing your probability uh, expectations and you say, okay, for the next four years, I think this is part of our business model like that, right? Yeah. And then you also say, how about all these guys that are saying that Bitcoin's boiling the oceans and then all of a sudden see that uh, it's actually doing good for the environment? How does that flip the narrative? And you play the probability distribution on that. And ultimately, that's what economics is. It's, it's not an on-off switch. It's not a Peter Schiff. I'm 0% in Bitcoin because it's, you know, I realize it's better than gold, but I'm just talking my mouth off. You don't play risk. You don't do risk management that way. You play probability. So you're right. If a, a future administration comes in and says, you know what, this whole carbon capture thing was a red herring. That may change, but right now, that's not the way it's moving, John. You see it. And quite honestly, I'd, I'd be happy to help clean up the environment, even though I'm a free marketer at heart. There's a lot of good that can come from this. Um, and there's always a cost. And, you know, there will be carbon. There will be fossil fuels. Uh, why? Well, it takes fossil fuels. Guess what? It takes fossil fuels to build solar uh, power uh, panels. It takes fossil fuels to build wind turbines. It build, takes fossil fuels to build dams for, you know, so this isn't about green energy or anything like that. This is 
pure economics and it's about doing it the most effective way possible. I'm totally on board with Marty Bent. I'm totally on board with Steve Barber and uh, Denver Bitcoin. These guys are absolutely pioneers in the field. I'm very proud to say we're part of that and we chose to do it a different way, maybe at a bigger scale. We have a partner in HUD8 and you saw the performance of their stock yesterday. HUD8 was up 40% at one point when all the other miners were down because Bitcoin was getting uh, tossed out like the baby with the bathwater. They were up 40%. Why? The market just said, hey, it's a billion dollar market cap. What is a billion dollars? It's not what it used to be. A billion dollars, you can find that in the, in the couch cushions of most, uh, uh, you know, of some of these high net worth individuals these days, right? Oh, oh, oh here's a billion. Well, that just could buy you all of HUD-8. Don't forget, there was a day when a billion dollars meant something. When the Fed's printing $120 billion a month, a billion dollars isn't what it used to be. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see the price action of these miners in the last three, you know, to six months, because, you know, obviously it's been robust. And um, how about this? Can I just throw that out? Unfortunately, a lot of them trade at like, you know, they don't trade as penny stocks, but they're, they're not that high value shares. And a lot of people that get into the stock market for the first time in their lives, uh, they're like, well, I'd never buy a stock that's $100 a share, but hey, I'd stock for a buck a share. Yeah, yeah, I'm all in. Like, unit, right? unit bias is real for sure. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so look, there's a lot to be said for that. And then they say, oh, Bitcoin this and Bitcoin miner. There was a time when Bitcoin mining was a horrible business. The economics have actually changed for it. Doesn't mean it won't go back to being a horrible business, but as hud eight's concerned, I believe they want to control their energy destiny. And someday, could HUD-8 become an energy company that mines Bitcoin on the side? 100% it could. And then I'll take it a step further. Could HUD-8 be a mining company that controls its energy sources? And on the top of the funnel, it's a bank. Marty Bent's ideas. Bitcoin miners become the banks of the future. Guys, this is so exciting. I was just going to say to you, like, I'm, I'm so this, this flies under the radar for all but the most hardcore people in the space, right? Hardcore Bitcoiners. Most people have no idea about this narrative, right? But it's so exciting. You know, it's, it's so, so exciting. exciting. John, John, I'm not sure how old you are. I'm going to say this once again, right? I'm 57 years old. I graduated my first undergraduate degree. I'd never used a personal computer. They didn't exist. I used mainframes. I used punch cards. Okay. Mm -hmm. I graduated from my MBA, Ivy League school. I had never used a real personal computer. I used the Apple Macintosh and I used this IBM thing where you had to plug in this card, a 54K floppy disk. I don't remember what, at the end of the, right now, the kids are growing up with an iPhone that has more computing power than was required to put two men on the moon in 1967. Think about that for one second, the difference of the generations that are growing up. So all the old money guys are guys like me. Heck, I, you know, my bias is, is paper money. Why? Because I've always used paper money. But when you think about the world moving to an iPhone, to digital, you know, and you brought this up, I need to, 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 to take issue with one thing you brought up. Central bank digital currencies are going to be nothing but digital fiat. Oh, digital I don't fiat disagree is, with you there. I just mean, I think they'll try oh, to use it as like okay, a white it's all good. They'll make it. So central bank digital currencies will be digital fiat with tracking and garbage. Okay. So it's digital garbage and it can track where you've spent your money. I'm not going to say that that's a bad thing, 
But I'm also not going to say that's a good thing, all right? Because we've seen how some governments use your spending against you. I'll say it's um, a bad thing for you. <laughs> look, I, I got to be careful because I already have enough enemies in, in my life after 57 <laughs> years of trading in credit markets, okay? Credit is a zero-sum game. If you're on the right side of a trade, there's a guy that lost a lot of money. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I will tell you that, again, I was Canada's first high-yield bond trader. Uh, I... I traded in 2008 in a, in a financial product that Canada cumulatively lost close to $16 billion in. Now that's a lot of money for Canada. And I was on the other side of that trade, not in all of the size, but I did a lot of it, okay? And people probably aren't that happy when Foss's name is brought up because they think of him as oh, the guy that skinned me. I didn't skin anyone. You were the dummies that bought it at 100 cents on the dollar. I just happened to buy it at 20 cents on the dollar and it went back to 100 cents on the dollar. Don't get mad at the person that is buying the stuff from you that you paid the wrong price for. Sure. And I'll say that to this to you on this subject as well. All right. There are people out there that do not want Bitcoin to succeed. They just don't. And you cannot listen to them. Because this is the bit best asymmetric trade I have seen in 32 years. And this includes the asset-backed commercial paper unwind in Canada that I previously just made mention of. There was 16 billion of it that I also thought was the best credit, uh, or, excuse me, risk-adjusted trade I'd ever seen before Bitcoin. I just wasn't big enough to buy all 16 billion, but I wanted to. Trust me, I wanted to buy it all. I just didn't manage enough money to buy it all. So we recycled it and I'd buy some and I'd sell some and I'd buy some. And who did we recycle it to? The smart hedge funds in the US that understood credit because Canadians that bought it at hundred cents on the dollar had no idea what they were buying. And the boogeyman came up and bit them. Yeah, well, I think that you make a broader point that one of the things that is probably going to come along with Bitcoin as, as great, you know, I, I love this community and I think it's going to grow and grow and develop its own unique culture, but you know, the people that uh, don't see it or can't participate or don't desire to participate, I think there's going to be, you know, a certain degree of, uh, you know, saltiness, salt, salt, saltiness from, yes. from them. Or, and or worse, right, John, or worse, right? Yeah. You see all these arguments. Oh, you know, the U S military, you know, Oh, you're boiling the oceans as a Bitcoin miner. Uh, sorry, Janet, guess what? Your U S military that's required to defend your global reserve currency stra uh, strategy or status. It probably has a little bit more impact on global environment than uh, Bitcoin mining does. Uh, oh, sorry. I forgot to tell you that. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And, you know, I think, Hopefully the edge, you know, there's a ton of great educators in this space. Hopefully that, that starts breaking through. I think, you know, the, the energy piece, you know, it's so exciting when you start seeing Bitcoin as a global energy extraction, preservation and distribution system uh, that, that is far more efficient than anything we've ever had. I mean, that alone is an interesting narrative to dig into and, and hopefully pushes itself out into the broader world because that that's very exciting, you know? That's Michael Saylor. And I'll just make a prediction here. When... Energy is priced in Bitcoin. So in other words, when natural gas and oil is priced in Bitcoin rather than the US dollar, Bitcoin will be the de facto reserve asset of the world. Mm -hmm. So then you start thinking about that for a second. You say, Russia, do you think Russia really wants to own US treasuries and US dollars in trade for its valuable natural resources? I think there's somebody there that's probably saying, hey, I'd rather have this thing called digital energy. Because I get natural energy 
excuse me, I get digital energy for my natural energy resources. And coming back to our man, Michael Saylor, conservation of energy, first law of thermodynamics, full stop, makes sense for an engineer. Engineers tend to be good at math. Modern monetary theorists tend to be good at subjective opinions. Politicking. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, Greg, this has been a super fun conversation. I want to throw it over to you for a last word before we shut it down. Yeah, I, I wonder if anyone's still listening to me at this point. Um, <laughs> I do have a, a paper that explains all this. I, I wrote it because so many people continue to ask me these questions. Um, it's available. Uh, uh, DM me. Uh, I can be found on Twitter. I'm a neophyte on Twitter, but I agree the Bitcoin Twitter community and all the uh, the Twitter community is an unbelievable resource. Uh, so I can be found on bitter uh, found on bitter. Uh, I can be found on Twitter. Uh, you can DM me. Uh, but this is a 30 year experience. This is a 30 year journey that very few people have ever done in their lives. And anyone who's under the age of 40 has certainly never done this journey that I've been on. I'm not telling you I'm right, but everybody out there that manages risk needs to play the probability distribution and do an expected value calculation on the risk return for Bitcoin. So I've said it, it's the best trade I've ever seen in 32 years, not because I'm certain of it, just because the right-hand side tail of where that distribution can go to is truly unbounded. I could borrow Max Kaiser's Bitcoin has no top because fiat has no bottom. Yeah, that's all true. These are unit of accounts, different unit of accounts. But if the world ever does price energy in Bitcoin, it will move to the world reserve asset. And do you think it'll be worth more than 5% of total global financial assets in that case, being 900 trillion and not 5% of that is 45 trillion and 45 trillion divided by 21 million, you know, is more than 2 million of Bitcoin. Yeah, there's a bigger than 0% chance that happens, you guys. Just play probabilities. And when the information changes, change your investment policy. But do not be Peter Schiff. Please do not be <laughs> Peter Schiff. That's great advice. So if, if people want that uh, article that you wrote up, they can just DM you and you're happy to send it to them. Is that what you're saying? Or I, I think I may have sent it to you, John, what, if you wouldn't mind, I'll, I'll send it to you and you can distribute it to anybody who's, who wants it or link it to this podcast or anything like that. There's a lot of reading in there, guys. It's, I don't even remember, but it's more than I did it in four installments. And there's, you know, my wife got about halfway through it and she looked at me, she goes, I never realized you were such a turbo geek, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta stop. But how, the, how come you haven't published it like on medium or something for public consumption? Can I just say that I'm 57 years old? I don't even know what medium is. Like I see it flash across. <laughs> I do not even know what this is. Okay. I didn't even know what Twitter was until six months ago. Right. Right. Like okay, I, I well. just, again, I've grown up in a different world. Okay. Fair enough. I grew up reading a physical newspaper. Maybe that'll tell you. I rode the train and Holy read shit. the Wall Street Journal every single morning <laughs> at five o'clock or sorry, six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Like that's a different life. It's a different world, but it's the people that are managing the big money right now are all people of my generation. Yeah. So well, man, medium is this. So, you know what? I went on my first clubhouse thing two nights ago. I went on clubhouse. I'm not sure I'm ever going to go back on it, but at least I went on it. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, that there's seven years old that really goes on clubhouse, you know, 
and, and, and people that do understand social media, the power of social media is amazing. Jeff Booth, I need to give one final shout out to Jeff Booth. I had a, a nice talk with him. I was skiing in Vancouver uh, last, last week and I just looked him up uh, prior to my trip and we had a great talk. Jeff Booth has written perhaps the greatest book I've written, read in the last 15 years called The Price of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I think he's been, has he been a, a, a guest on your show, John? He has, yeah, he's great. The man is, and I'm so proud to say as a Canadian, a fellow Canadian, we at least talk the same language, but he's predicting all of this stuff, like this mm-hmm. AI stuff and all of this, he's so much smarter than I'll ever be, but I'm just trying to, you know, peel away the layer of the onion. And then I can actually relate it to something I've been involved with for 30 years, which is pricing credit. And credit doesn't need to default, but if you lend somebody uh, money at 1% and you really should be lending it to them at 6%, who's the fool in the room? Eh? It ain't the person borrowing the money from you. It's the person who's lending you the money. So Michael Saylor gets this credit, excuse me, capital creation, i.e. buying Bitcoin with the proceeds of artificially low interest rates manipulated by our central bank shenanigans. You could write an entire textbook on it, but you'll never see it in the public schools or universities. Ah, why? There's a bias. There's already a bias in those uh, institutions. 100%. And I, I think case studies will be using Michael Saylor in the business schools of the future. And, you know, I think we're all probably jealous that we can't access capital as cheaply or in as, as in as much size as Michael Saylor can. But, you know, so, that, I guess that's why he's the giga chat. You can do it. Uh, every every investment's made. You should not be paying down your mortgage right now. A better investment is taking a portion of that prepayment that you would be uh, paying down and taking and at least owning more than zero Bitcoin. Okay. Could not agree more. That with is that. the proper risk adjustment for everybody's personal portfolios. Credit is credit. It doesn't matter whether you borrow it corporately, you bor- borrow it personally. Your mortgage rates right now are artificially low. Yeah. They're artificially low thanks to the central banks. I'll also say this, your house isn't actually going up in value, guys. It's the unit of account it's, it's measured against is going down in value. No yeah. one's making money on real estate. It's just that the value of the currency, the fiat that's measuring that real estate is falling off the cliff. And, and this is what I've been telling you know people in my personal life, that it's such a unique slice of time where you have both extremely artificially cheap you know, capital, cheap credit, artificially low interest rates with the emergence of an upgraded form of money being distributed on the world that is Bitcoin. That is, you know, the counterplay to that. Like the dynamic that we're experiencing right now where you get both of those is not going to be the case for long. One of them will go, so Bitcoin will continue its rise and the asymmetric opportunity will get smaller and smaller and interest rates won't be, money won't be able to be free forever. So it's such a unique period right now to take advantage. You nailed it. I think you nailed it. I I will throw out one other thing. I got involved in Bitcoin when it was below a thousand bucks a coin. Um, I personally believe Bitcoin is less risky and is a better risk adjusted trade right now. 100%. At this price. Mm -hmm than it was when I first got involved with it. Do not look at absolute dollar prices. Look at things like network effects, adoption, strength of network, okay? And five years ago, most of the world didn't even know what the word fiat meant. That's the truth. And now just about every financial publication is talking about this thing called fiat. And as people dig in more to what fiat really is, you'll realize, in the Roman empires, they started shaving the edges off of gold coins. 
That's what fiat does, okay? It debases itself. So Roman soldiers stopped getting paid in Roman coins because the government was shaving the edges off these beautiful things. That's why the edges of coins have little gouges in them. So they'll know if the mineral that was underlying its value uh, actually has been taken out of the coin, okay? So many cool things as Canadians, wampum. You know, Indigenous Canadians traded seashells. That was their uh, currency of account. Wampum actually has more value than the Canadian dollar, in my opinion. <laughs> I agree with you. And uh, man, I'm sure we could we could go on for hours, but uh, you know, I'll let you get on with your day. I really and, and you too. And listen, um, I, I will say this: try and lower your time preference, everyone. Um, I haven't looked at the price of Bitcoin since we started this uh, podcast, but I'll also say this: I try not to look at it for days at a time because it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Okay, think of the big picture. I strongly believe that the energy industry will price their valuable natural resources in Bitcoin. And when that happens, it's just a matter of world adoption. So thank you for having me so much. Thank you. I'm a Torontonian. You live in, um, in uh, Newfoundland or you're in Newfoundland. Uh, please, if you're ever coming through this town, uh, you know, it's a big town, but I can make it anywhere. I have some pubs in Montreal if you ever get to Montreal. Not a great business to be involved in right now, but uh, I'm a partner in eight Irish pubs in Montreal. Um, let's hope those open, reopen someday. Uh, and I just want to thank you for all the great work you're doing in the, uh, in the Bitcoin community. It's amazing how the Canadian Bitcoin community punches way above its weight. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I appreciate the kind words. And I'll take you up on that offer for sure. I know there's a lot of great Bitcoiners in both Montreal and Toronto. So if I'm passing through, I'll use this as an opportunity to get everyone together. We'll have some steaks, some beers and, and have oh, a chat. I'm trying to get Francis Pouliot to hold his uh, Bitcoin uh, gatherings at, uh, at any of my pubs in Montreal. I'll give them. He, I'll he, give them uh, he ain't coming back. I guarantee you. So that. I don't even know where he is. Like uh, he's gone he, somewhere. And I think he's in Costa Rica. He's in Central America somewhere. Is he? But Costa Rica, great surfing place. If you've he's never out, been. man, he's 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 uh, not a fan of what's going on in Canada, nor am I. But he's he's obviously taken uh, steps to extricate himself from this situation. And yeah, well, he was a, he was a great uh, Canadian, a great Quebecer, um, a great uh, Bitcoiner, and I hope he comes back because Canada needs more people like him that tell the truth. Okay, this is about telling the truth, and Bitcoin is math and code. That's all it is, math and code. And in my opinion, it is the truth. Yeah, well said. I think that's a great place to leave it. Greg, really appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking sometime in the future. Once again, thank you so much for having me. Take care, buddy. You too, bud.